Welcome to the public morality. March is Women's History Month, a 31-day commemoration of the contributions of women around the world. It is a month set aside to remember the achievements as well as sacrifices made by women to help make the world a more inclusive place. But with all histories whose legacies are rooted in part in a marginalized station, the story of women historically includes a dark side. My guest, author Dr. Bernita Mitchell, delves into a portion of that dark side and as well as the present in her new book, Sexual Terrorism, Women Trapped in Silence, Domination, Power, and Control. Dr. Bernita Mitchell, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. Thank you, Byron, for having me. I'd like to begin this conversation by having you, in a larger sense, offer the overall importance of Women's History Month. Well, the overall importance of Women's History Month, from my view, is that, and it's also stated that this is a time of celebration for women who have, who have exhibited extraordinary courage and uh, strength in changing history. And so from, from where I sit as a um, survivor of sexual terrorism and working with women who are victims of this atrocity, I would say that Women's History Month, I would actually celebrate the women that are, uh, are victims because they have a tremendous amount of courage and strength. Uh, they have survived it, right? They are their own heroes in their own story. So that's really what it means to me right now. Mm -hmm. uh, on that aspect, one thing that seems lost to me, at least from my perspective, Women's History Month has a similar feel to Black History Month in that it's really treated with an adjunct status. And I understand that Women's History Month is a global phenomenon, but here in America, when we talk about Women's History Month, are we not just talking about another aspect of the American narrative? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, it, it's with Black History Month, it was an appendage to to, to the entire history. So that's, a, that's the same situation with Women's History Month because the history is pretty much written for, from males, right? And so you often don't hear her story, which is very popular now. Everyone's talking about her story because we've been so used to hearing his story. So that, that's, an, that's a valid criticism, I think, because we, we have to have a month for Women's History Month to awaken the society and the world that women are valuable, women have contributed, women are equal, women, uh, in order for societies to succeed, you have to have women. So, you know, it was created out of a lack, right? A lack of awareness. And, and sadly, you, you really can't have uh, a story of, about women in, in women's history that doesn't include, unfortunately, the subjugation of women's bodies Hence, your powerful forthcoming text, Sexual Terrorism. Tell us specifically about that, if you would. Sexual Terrorism, what I, what I do in the book is I expose with evidence that there is a global war being waged against women and girls. It's a silent war that ravages them from the inside out. So this war, uh, the weapon of this war is unwanted and forced sex. Normally, when we talk about uh, sexual abuse and violence against women, that's, that's the, the way that we describe what happens in this incident. And different states actually call it different things. But the bottom line is, is normally it's sexual abuse and violence, right? Now we know that United Nations has already said that violence against women is a human rights violation and crime against humanity. However, in our society, we, we're calling it sexual abuse which is, that means that you're using someone's body for something other than what it was designed to be, right? And then violence, we know, is intended harm that could cause death. And that's true when it comes to violating a woman or a girl's body. But however, what it fails to do, it fails to describe the true horror, the true terror, when a victim, woman or girl in this context, is sexually violated and exploited. So, the reason that I call it sexual terrorism, and I did not coin the phrase, is that 
it really speaks to what happens to a survivor, a victim, when they are walking down the street and they're female, or they're walking in at night and it's dark, go into their car, they're on campus, and they sense, they even anticipate that the person behind them is trying is going to rape them. So it's it's the it's that fright, right? That happens when you're walking or when you're you're going to the car or you're in a laundromat. And then you're terrorized when you actually go through the experience. That goes without saying. And then the last thing is when you actually have to disclose who the person is and how it happened. So all that terrorizes the individual. And when we look at, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up with this, terrorization by definition means overwhelming fright, fear, humiliation, and dread. But we don't call it that. We call it sexual abuse and violence instead of sexual terrorization. I'm not familiar, I was not, until I read your book, I was not familiar with the term. You just said you didn't originate it. Can you tell us where the term originated from? Yes, the term originated from uh, Dr. Carol Shedfield. She is a psychologist. Uh, she's also uh, Professor Emeritus at William Patterson College, which is now a university here in New Jersey, in Patterson, New Jersey. And so she was teaching classes on violence against women and feminism and that kind of thing. She considers herself a feminist. And she describes the story that happened to her as to why she coined the phrase sexual terrorism. And very briefly, she's in a laundromat at night and the lights are on in the laundromat. Cars are driving by. She gets nervous. She starts to, to fear because she's, an only, she's the only person in this laundromat. What, and so the anticipation is what would happen if, if a guy comes in and tries to rape me? What happens is it doesn't happen, but just the fright and the fear alone was terrifying for her. So when she went back to her class, she talked to her students, turns out that the women were embarrassed to say that they were terrorized, that they think about it all the time. And research proves this, by the way, that they think women think about it when they're walking at night. And so she talks to her students, but the male students never said that they felt terror. They just felt that they could handle it. They could, you know, that's not something they think about. So from that experience, her own personal spirit experience where she wasn't even harmed, just the anticipation that she would be sexually violated. That's what made now, her, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say, when you said that though, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but when you said that, I, I remember we talked a few minutes earlier about Women's History Month vis-a-vis -vis Black History Month and how these have adjunct status. What I'm hearing you say right there with Dr. Sheffield is this sounds like the women's version that, bl that black families have to have, with, especially with their black sons, about you gotta have the talk when you go out. This sounds like a different version of the talk. Absolutely, absolutely. Because what do we tell, what do we tell our, or need to be telling our girls? If it feels uncomfortable, then something's wrong. If someone touches you in a way that's uncomfortable, tell someone. So yeah, we do, yes, absolutely. We do, I tell my daughter. Women tell their daughters, and, and because it's so rampant and so prevalent, more and more women are having that conversation. Generations ago, didn't necessarily have it. You have it, you know. You would just say, "Don't let Uncle So and So, don't let him put you on your lap." But today, because of the statistics are so high, because it is a pandemic, right? We have to have that conversation. There have been a number of high-profile male celebrities in recent years, including Harvey Weinstein, R. Kelly, obviously Bill Cosby, that come to mind who've been convicted on some form of sexual abuse, as they were convicted of, on some form of sexual abuse. And not to single out uh, Mr. Cosby, but hearing you speak, I, I was reminded of the fact that you still have men and women who are supporters uh, of, of Mr. Cosby who say, offer the what I call the yes, but alibi. Yes, Mr. Cosby may have done something, but those women were not completely innocent. How do you respond to that type of rationale? Well, the way I respond to that is in, a, in, it's in two ways. One, in terms of the black community, we, we have the propensity uh, of, of kind of shrouding over when someone does something in our community that is not 
acceptable in a larger societal scale because of the history of black men being demonized. So we often go there. Well, no, it's, you know, it's because of society. Uh, uh, Clarence Thomas, when he was, when he was going through that court case with uh, Anita Hill, said that this is a, a um, uh, high tech Lincoln. Yeah, yes, he did. And so, of course, that's going to evoke in you, oh, well, we're going after a black man. So we, 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 we do that. We, we make excuses because we know what society will do and has done in our community in reference to black men. The other part of your question was about the uh, women. And I, I'm, I think what I, get, what I get what you're saying is the women coming out and disclosing that they have been sexually and I'm using my term sexually terrorized by Bill Cosby. So that part of the question, what were you asking? You're asking why they, why it takes so well, long? I was, I was curious about the yes, but alibi. Like Cosby in particular, you know, we have, uh, we have on record him admitting to doing this behavior. Yes. But, but yet there was still this yes, but yes, he did something but were it not for those women going over his house, that wouldn't have happened. Right, right. Okay, I understand. So we're putting the, the, the first part of that aside in terms of the black community's uh, perspective of it, right? Yes, but you know black men are treated this way and that's what they're doing. They're going after him. The other yes is, is, that, is that yes, <laughs> we, have, we have a problem. We have a problem when it comes to women being sexually violated. We have normalized it. We have we have diminished it. We haven't even romanticized it. So, of course, when you have that perspective that, well, it's her fault. She's the blame. It, that's the but. But you know what? She had no business being in the room with him. And I, I have to add that what people don't understand is they're looking at these women. They're now 50 and 60 years old. But remember, the, these were teenagers, right? They were minors. And that is statutory rape when you take advantage of. So we're actually our per, our view of it is, is 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 skewed because we're looking at them older, all of all of the different cases, Harvey Weinstein, the whole thing. But these are younger women. And so what we do is we 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 blame the victim. We and we constantly do that. You hear more about the blame of why was she wearing that dress, you know, that was so provocative. Why was she drinking? Why was she in his room? Right? All of that is about the, the victim, survivor, instead of the male, the perpetrator. For example, look at prostitution. It's always the prostitute. She gets a misdemeanor, she gets arrested. No one says anything to the John, the so-called John, right? That's why, because we have a culture that's shrouded around, blame, blame the woman. And there are roots of where that comes from. But blame her, it's her fault. Because boys will be boys, right? Now, what I, I guess what I'm hearing that added to that, what we, you know, um, and and it's on various varying levels, whether it's Harvey Weinstein, R. Kelly, Bill Cosby. Oftentimes, and there's not to be celebrities. Oftentimes, there's also a power dynamic on some level at operation as well. Would that be correct? Oh, that's absolutely correct, and that is a that's a criticism that I have of the media because it's always the high profile cases that are out there that are spoken about and that are they're bringing awareness to. But this is happening in communities. This is happening in churches, church sanctuaries, forests, right? It's happening all over the world. And in this country, it's happening everywhere. A woman is not safe in a room full of men. That was from the, the color purple, color purple uh, Oprah Winfrey's character said that. Why does that resonate? Because it's true, we have, because we have one in three, right? One in three women globally is sexually violated, sexually terrorized. We have one in three American girls before the age of 18. I don't think people know this statistic, Byron, because if you really listen to that, one in three before they're 18 years old will be sexually violated. And then one in three female American soldiers will be sexually assaulted by a fellow serviceman and will suffer four times as much post-traumatic stress than in combat. That statistic alone is startling. But see, we don't know this. The information is not out there. So the media is not really giving it credence. 
And then the FBI has already said that every two minutes a woman is raped in America. Right? We have 300 million people, a million dollars made off of, off of uh, sexual trafficking in Atlanta alone. In Atlanta alone. And then you've got a multi-billion dollar industry of child pornography. But when I say in my book, when I talk about, you know, that America is an unadmitted rape culture, some that have, have read excerpts from it, especially men, unfortunately, have a problem with that. Because, and it's not their fault. We're not talking about the average person. We're only talking, so people look at it as an isolated incident. Oh, well, that's Bill Cosby. Oh, that's Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, that's R. Kelly. No, it's not. It's the guy next door. It's the person in your home. It's your family member. It's your pastor. But we're not, so we need to bring, and that's what I do in the book. I want to bring more awareness. That's one of the things is to educate the public that this, this is a pandemic. It's real. And we have women and girls suffering silent because they're afraid to tell. Real quickly, talk about the difference between, because you mentioned in those statistics, you use two different words. And I want you to talk about the difference. You first you said one in three girls will, uh, before they reach 18 in America will be sexually assaulted. I mean, yes, sexually assaulted. And then you use sexual abuse, I think. What are the differences between those two? Well, I, as I said earlier, and I actually said one in, th well, I should have said if I didn't, one in three, and actually the terminology doesn't really matter because it's all forms of sexual terrorism. But as mm -hmm. I said earlier, sexual abuse, right, and, and violence is the standard. That's what's used. There's so many different terms. You've, you've got sexual assault, you've got sexual harassment, you've got rape, you've got corrective rape, you've got intimate partner violence. I mean, these are all words that are used interchangeably to talk about what, ha what happens to define sexual abuse and violence, right? Which is why, <laughs> Byron, I'm actually wanting to change the way people perceive and define those terms. They're okay to use, but you need to really, actually, they should, the term should be sexual terrorism throughout because we're not giving it credence to what happens from a survivor-centric perspective. We're not giving survivors credit for what they're going through, this horrible, terrifying experience. So those terms are limited, but I, in the book, I use them interchangeably because people are familiar with them. And then even the research that I use, uses the word sexual assault, like for the, for example, with the, uh, the service women, our soldiers, right? Our female soldiers, the report and the research says, uses the word sexual assault. And I'm sure you've heard, you hear, you hear all, you hear sexual assault, sexual molestation, right? You hear all those different forms. But what I'm, my driving point is that they're all sexual terrorism because they terrorize, all right, the victim survivor, be it male, female, girl, or child, or an 80-year-old. Well, staying with your, staying with your definition of sexual terrorism, we know that sexual terrorism has occurred in the White House. I'm thinking uh, uh, President Kennedy, who, um, uh, was involved with with a with with a woman who hadn't reached uh, 18 years old. We know based based on the reading of your text that it happens in palaces. We we know that sexual terrorism uh, occurs in remote villages and rural communities. It's not bound by race, ethnicity, religion. I mean, that sounds to me that sexual terrorism, as you define it, is quite pervasive in the global culture, and it doesn't matter. Uh, if one lives in a so-called developed nation or an underdeveloped nation. I'd like to have you say more about that if you would. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that because actually, because we know that pandemic just means that it's worldwide, all right? We, we're living with COVID, this is a virus, it's worldwide, it's considered a pandemic. Well, if you have one, one in three women globally that are being sexually violated, sexually terrorized, that's a, that's a pandemic. You know, that's not even up for discussion or argument, one in three. All right, and that means put 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 uh, five women in the room, all right, or six women in the room. You're gonna have two of them that are sexually terrorized. So it is a global phenomenon, and that's why in my book I'm trying to to help the readers to understand. Again, it's not an isolated event. It is a global phenomenon that we need to connect the dots and see that it's happening in Africa, where women are 
and and they try to make it exclusive to Africa, but it's it, it happened in the United States. I don't want to go away from your point, but the point is is that it's everywhere. But in America, when I said Africa, I was talking about female uh, female genitalia mutilation and breast ironing, which happens in Africa, Asia, South America, those Middle East, but it also happens in the United States. So this is the this is the point of contention. America has a problem with calling it what it is, whereas it's easier for America to call it barbarism, right? Uh, it's terrifying. It's terrorism, like ISIS and Boko Haram. All that's terrorism, sexual terrorism. But we don't call it that here. And it's the same thing, the same definition. Terrorism, right? As I said earlier, Byron, terrorism is the overwhelming fright, fear, humiliation, and dread. That's what it causes. That's what it is. So if, a, if, if 300 women, uh, women, let's say, three, 300 million, and of those, let's just say that the majority are women in Atlanta who are being abducted, human trafficked, put out on the street as prostitutes, sexually gang raped, why aren't we calling it sexual, sexual terrorism? So there's this unadmitted rape culture mentality that, oh, it's happening over there and it's horrible, but it's happening here, but we don't call it that. And we do know a lot of the information and the facts, not just those high profile. We know individuals because we, we've seen stories that come out. However, we won't call it what it is because I, for me, my belief is that you want to give this perception that America is not that way. It is not that way, all right? I've had men respond to, to, to something that I posted about when I talked about unadmitted rape culture. Oh, no, 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 that's not America, but it is. <laughs> and I'm what, what I'm doing in the book is let's call it what it is. You cannot fix what you don't acknowledge. Let's acknowledge that we have a rape culture, which means that, you know, it's normalized, it's romanticized in videos and, you know, uh, uh, all these uh, social media platforms that don't take down when there's solicitation for human uh, sexual trafficking. Yeah, we, we just don't want to admit it. But I think we need to call it what it is. I was particularly struck by the following passage in your book, and I, and I would like to get your comments on the other side of the quote. You wrote, quote, sexual terrorism is a, is a war unlike any other, cruel beyond imagination. It is vicious and deadly, and unfortunately underreported and perpetrators are exonerated with widespread impunity. Dr. Mitchell? Yeah, that, okay, that speaks to a couple of things. It is widespread. I mean, we've established that. It is in, is in, the, in the book, you know, the, the statistics that will prove that it's widespread. Cruel, it's cruel because, well, first of all, it, it's cruel because it's insidious, right? And what happens is when in all the different forms, let's say, let's choose one, um, sexual trafficking, right? It's insidious because you're, you're taking uh, in this context, women. You're taking them from school, you're taking them off the street because um, there's a large percentage that are runaways, which is where the LGBT community comes in. I think in Atlanta, they're like 40% um, of the population that's being trafficked, sexually trafficked. Insidious, you're doing this undercover, right? Almost on the down low where people can't see it. It's a dark experience, it's hidden. This is why a lot of the numbers are not out there uh, that people can identify with. So it's it's insidious, it's cruel because you're taking you're taking the, the innocence in, in, of a, a woman or a girl's body and you're using it for economic profit. Insidious. Mm -hmm. It's cruel because women are being gang raped, women are being uh, beaten if they're you know if they're if they're they've been abducted in Atlanta or any other place in New Jersey, because, you know, there's brothels all over. Women are, and girls are being sold all over. And so it's cruel because they're, they're beaten, they're given drugs, you know, they're forced to take drugs. This is unwanted and forced sex. That's cruel. That lacks humanity, right? And that's, that's why it's, it's terroristic, because it, it has, it, they don't care. 
They don't care that you are an object. The worldview of women is that women are inferior to men and our bodies are objects of sexual pleasure. So when this happens, this cruelty, this insidious war, they're not looking at you as, well, you're somebody's mother, you're somebody's sister, you're somebody's daughter, you're somebody's wife. No, the human mind can't even conceive of looking at somebody and saying, oh, you're my mama and I'm gonna, I'm, you're my auntie and I'm, you're 80 years old and I'm gonna, I'm gonna rape you. No, no, no. What happens, Byron, is that you have to reduce the person, be it male, female, child, or elderly person or someone on the margins, you have to reduce them to an object. And when you do that, that's where the inhumanity is, that's where the cruelty is, okay? And that's why that quote speaks to that, what happens when you actually violate a, a person in this context, a woman or a girl's body. You don't care about them as women. And they've interviewed perpetrators, right? And they've said, I didn't really think about that. I just wanted to, I, I was just, I wanted to have sex. But see, it's not even, that's just one level. There's a higher level of domination, power, and control by men who actually violate. I'm controlling you. I control your body. I feel weak, right? So I, so I need something to make me feel, and I tell the story, I tell the story in, in, my, in my book about my 80-year-old aunt. Well, can you blame, she's raped and she's raped, she's tied up, she set on fire by, by a young man who came out of prison who had been charged with rape and was released. Well, now, what are you gonna say to her? Well, she wore her skirt too short, all right? She was out dancing. This is an 80-year-old woman. So it really isn't about lust and pleasure. That's secondary, right? Unwanted and forced sex. But what it's about is power, domination, and control. And that's where I, I, I go in a lot throughout the, the text about patriarchy. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Benita Mitchell, author of the new book, Women Trapped, I'm sorry, Sexual Terrorism, Women Trapped in Silence, Domination, Power, and Control. Dr. Mitchell, how would you respond to those who are willing to dis dismiss this text as another entry that simply bashes men? Well, I would say this, um, I, I, and I'll point it out one more time before I say something else, and that is, when men, when this happens, or I'll say to men, if men dismiss it, because women have internalized this patriarchy, right? And they haven't internalized that women should be violated, but they've internalized that, oh, it's, it's a woman's fault. But let's address men because, you know, this is, a, this is a war that is dominated primarily by men. So one, I would say to them, think about this. You, you, I've given you, I've provided you with the statistics. We know that the, the stats don't lie. This is a pandemic, okay? Are these victim survivors, are they somebody's mother, sister, wife, daughter? That's a question. Would you, if this happened to your mother, your sister, your wife, or your daughter, how would you feel? So that's on an emotional level. And the last, the second thing I would say is that in my text, in the book, I talk about toward the, uh, toward the end of, of the, uh, of the book, I talk about the need that we're not that I'm, I'm not bashing men. I'm what I am is calling out men who are patriarchal, who believe that women are weaker than men and that our bodies are there as objects of their sexual pleasure. That's who I'm calling out. So if, if you're not that kind of man, you don't have to worry about anything. And I would say the third thing is that, you know what, this book will help men to understand why they believe that they are, that many men in our culture and throughout the world believe, Byron, that our bodies are, are there for their sexual pleasure. They believe that. They think that our body, we're, they're entitled to our bodies, whether it's on a political level, whether it's on a social level, economic, our bodies are there for their sexual pleasure and therefore they are entitled. And you hear men saying that, and it's really sad because they've been socialized to believe that they're entitled. No, you're not entitled. And I think I, uh, uh, I do mention this in, in my book about the um, 1997 documentary called The Greatest Silence, Rape in the Congo, which is one of the things that inspired me to do this work and also to, you know, to write this book. And Lisa Jackson, who was a survivor, she actually interviewed women 
the needs were young, young children, young women, uh, to women in their 70s. And the women knew that they were going to be, you know, that their interviews were going to go worldwide. So they had a lot of courage to do this. But anyway, my point is, after they interviewed them, she, after she interviewed them, she went back to the jungle. Because this is the war in, in, in Congo, and they were abducting women, right? They were taking them into the jungle. They were using knives and forks, knives and, and, and glass and guns and shoving those things, forgive me, up their vaginas, right? It was brutal, brutal terrorism, sexual terrorism, and then making them wives and then impregnating them and all of that. So she went back. She just wanted to understand, which I think is a, a great question. Why? How did we get to this place where that, that's normalized, that's okay in that culture? And even in America, some of the things that go on. And the young men who were, who were the, in the jungle, who were the soldiers, who were the militants, who were doing this abduction and, and getting raped, said, well, we were taught. We were taught, that's the operative word, we were taught that it's okay, that it's okay, that we can do what, what we want with a woman's body. That's not just in the Congo. That's across the, the world in, in, in various cultures. They believe that. And it's true in America. You know, Dr. Mitchell, listening to you, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to come back to something you, you, you touched on earlier. I'm going to come back to this word terrorism, because that's a word that we associate with groups like um, Al-Qaeda. Uh, domestically, I associated with the Ku Klux Klan. But you place this word terrorism central to your text. Um, so I'm going to ask you, are you saying is America a terrorist country when it comes to violence against women? I'm saying that America has terrorists, sexual terrorists, and that we need to, to put it on the same level because when we look at, we know domestic terrorism, which, you know, that is a term that we use today, right? Columbine, uh, January 6th, you know, the, 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 the uh, failure to, to overthrow the government, that whole coup, all those things, 9-11, yes, terrorism, because it means overwhelming fear, fright, humiliation, and dread. All right. And of course, the violence is there. So you got domestic terrorism. Then you have racial terrorism. We've established that racial terrorism is terrorism against a, a specific ethnic group. So in, in that context, we're, we're talking about African-Americans right? during slavery, the raping of black women, you know, the castration, all of that. And then we have Native Americans. Right? We know that men and women, women and men were raped during that during the time of genocide. So we've established that those are terroristic acts, right? Then you have religious terrorism, which is terrorism of because of someone's religious affiliation. So what do we have? Then we have this today. It's growing. It's it's you know it's highest in, in in decades. We've got terrorism against Jews, right? Sikhs and Muslims, primarily, largely. So if the result is the same, if the act is the same. If we describe what happens in those 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 uh, terroristic uh, reports that I've made, if we say that that is terroristic, again the definition, right? Overwhelming, right? Fear, humiliation, dread. Then why don't why can't we say why can't we call it what it is when it happens to a woman or a girl, and in in, in actually when it happens to men or boys? Because I've worked with both who have been objects of, of sexual pleasure by an adult. Now, I've had the privilege of, of, of reading this text. I've heard, I've heard you speak on this prior uh, in preparation for our conversation. So I know, and you've admitted, you've mentioned on this broadcast that you yourself are a survivor of sexual terrorism. I, I'm wondering, could you have written this book in your view if you were not a survivor? I don't think so. I mean, I think I could have written it from an intellectual and from, re from a, a research perspective, but it would not, I would not be able to give it the kind of authenticity and passion that I am giving it because I am a survivor. And that's why in my, in my book, Byron, I also have my story. So in that I tell my own experience, you know, it's not graphic, but I tell the, the journey of my experience from that to doing this work now, turning my pain, as they say, into action. So no, I don't think that someone, it's like, for example, 
uh, I could write books about, someone could write books about motherhood. But, you, but if you're not a mother, you're gonna miss something and you're not gonna give it the, the, the total authenticity that it deserves. So yes, and survivors know that. They know, they know when people are not survivors, they appreciate it, it's a noble effort, but you really don't know what it feels like. It's just like being an African-American in America. And it's beautiful that we have our brothers and our sisters that are allies, but when it comes to what it really feels like, only the person that is African-American or, or of African descent knows what that feels on a visceral, on an emotional, on a deeper level. Now, one, one word that you write about in the text, we, I don't think we've used in this conversation, I'd like for you to talk about the role that shame plays in maintaining the status quo. Oh my God, shame is huge. Because shame means that you, you, you did something wrong. You should be, you know how we grow up and then you should be ashamed of yourself. Uh, yeah, and you, you feel bad, right? You feel humiliated. So shame is, is, is huge when it comes to survivors, victim survivors disclosing. Because the shame of it all is like, uh, this happened to me. I must, there must be something wrong with me. Now I'm dirty. I'm, um, I, I'm, I'm dirty laundry. I remember Maya Angelou who, um, well, this is sort of different than that, but when, when I'll, I'll put that on the side, but this, the shame issue is why, why survivors don't, that's one of the biggest reasons why they don't tell is because they're ashamed that it happened. However, when they know, even though this was perpetrated on them, right? They still feel the shame because it must be something I did wrong. And then society perpetuates that myth, by the way. But it must be something I'm, because this happened. This should have happened to me. And then it's your body, right? Which is a sacred space, a sacred part of you that's being violated. That brings shame all by itself. And so, when per, when when survivors are asked about what happened, I've worked with children. We have to who have been violated. We have to have them draw it because the shame is so is so thick. It's so, it's so demeaning. It's so devastating that this happened. And then even my own experience, the shame was there. And sometimes you repress it, you don't even realize that you really deep down underneath the surface, you're really ashamed that that happened. Now, the correction for that is when you know that you're not alone. I cannot tell you how that makes a big difference. When you know that there are others out there, that it's not just you. Cause you, you know, you're thinking, well, something's wrong with me because they chose me to do this too? Oh, there's something wrong with me. But when you know, and this is why the book is so important because I give this, the, the facts, the statistics that, no, no, this is happening in this country, across the board, in forests, in churches, right? That whole litany of things that I mentioned earlier that I continue in the book. Then you know, you know what? No, it's not just about me. I didn't do anything wrong. I don't need to be ashamed. But that's the work I do. And I do it as a counselor to help survivors understand, you know, no, the shame is on the person. They should be ashamed, not you. Well, following up on that shame, is that why, is shame at the root why some people, you hear, you know, the, the, the people in response, well, why did she wait so long before she said something? Is that, is that part of that? Is that Abs playing? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, because what happens when you're sexually violated, sexually terrorized, shame and silence what they what happens is you're rendered shameful powerless and silent right because now you're afraid to tell for various reasons but the women to your point about women uh taking so long to disclose even in my own situation it took me 40 years before i disclosed because of the shame because in my context i thought well if i tell you know this, you know, my, my, uh, my family is not going to, they're going to, they're not going to talk to me anymore. I mean, you carry that. So when people, and it really does, it's very, it's really disturbing to me when people say, well, what, what took her so long? But they don't understand that there are different, there are a variety of reasons. One is shame. Two, you, you can be re-traumatized, which is what happened to the, the, uh, the young women who were, uh, 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 what do you call it? They were, uh, gymnasts, right? These Olympic gymnasts that were on, and uh, Simone Boyles was on there, and there were three or four other women. And one of the women said, this is re-traumatizing me. 
And that's a reason why, because you relive it. Now you, you know, you got to go there. So that's, that's two. And then there can be retribution. There could be, I'm going to, if you ever tell, which happens a lot to children and young adults, you ever tell, I'm going to kill your whole family. People need to know that, you know, it's not, well, it didn't really happen because she didn't tell right. It took me 40 years. I'm a counselor. I'm a counselor. I'm a minister. I wasn't a minister then, but I was 10 years old. It took me 40 years before I, I felt the courage to tell, the strength to tell. And that's the work we do, you know, with my nonprofit organization, Healing Waters Global, is we help women to, to feel, to help them to be in a safe space where they can feel compelled to break their silence. Men, tell your story, right? So yes, we need to stop saying that, that why did it take so long? And that is, that's the classic response. Why did it take you so long? Well, I want to stay with this shame because what I just heard you say in your last answer was, I mean, it, embedded in that shame, you know, there's also a mental component um, that one has to relive it, which which creates a whole set of dynamics. And another reason people don't say anything is because of that power dynamic that we talked about earlier. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the power dynamic is clear. I mean, it's, 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 if you tell, and I think I, I mentioned this or alluded to it, you could, uh, I'll kill your family or I'll hurt you again. You better not tell anybody. Um, and so this is, when you see a woman come out and say that this happened and it, it was recent, that is a strong woman. That is someone who's probably done, gone through some counseling and had and got help with the shame. You cannot, you, you're not gonna get out there and talk about what happened to you if you're still ashamed of it. So shame is, is a huge part and, and shame brings the silence. That's why this war is a silent war because it ravages the, the individual, the, the woman from the inside out. It's, it's her mental health, right? Her physical health is important, but the mental health, the emotional health, you know, the, the emotional, mental debilitation that it, it creates and spiritual debil debilitation. When it's, when it's uh, for example, when it's uh, uh, someone in the clergy or even just an individual who's wondering, well, where was God? Why did you let this happen? How come you didn't make it stop? Those are the things that ha are embodied in this experience that people don't know about. And also, again, healing waters, that's part of what we do is educate the people, the public on the lifelong emotional, psychological and spiritual debilitation. So it's complicated, but there's a lot of reasons. I mean, when we look at the, the, the facts and the research that's out here, high numbers of, of women with, with, um, that have been sexually terrorized also have, they live with mental illnesses, right? Bulimia anorexia, high numbers, immune, dis immune um, disorders, right? Like uh, lupus and multiple sclerosis. Not that all women that are, are living with those conditions or those diseases are sexually terrorized or victims, but there's a high, there's a high rate of them. You talk about the shame, you talk about the courage for a woman to, to, to come forward and tell her story. And, and, and I am reminded of what really changed the narrative in the LGBT community when you had more and more people coming out. So just being gay became more, became normalized in the culture as opposed to being this thing stuck in the corner. So my question to you, is this something in terms of more and more women telling their story? Is this some way, is this something that could confront the sexual terrorism um, and create more allies if women in particular were willing to publicly share their stories? Absolutely. That's the, that's the work that, that we do with Healing Waters and that's the work in this book is to affirm to women, right? That we understand you. We know, we, we know that this has happened to you. We believe you because those are things that I'm telling you, I was at a, I was at a conference or a workshop and these were all professional women that were there. And when it was my turn to share, because we were all providers, what is it that you do? What does your organization do? And when I, at the very end of my presentation, I said, I want women to know, I want survivors to know that we believe you 
it was not your fault, and you're not alone. Those three things that I, I would offer, say that to a survivor when they have the courage, you know how much courage it takes to tell somebody something so, so deeply sacred. Those are the three things you tell them. Well, afterwards, when we're, do, you know, we're doing, you know, we're eating and having lunch, a woman comes over to me, very professional, dressed in her suit, beautiful woman and a professional, I forget what she does, something high on the rank. And she comes over to me, tears in her eyes. She said, do you know when I was going through being sexually violated, nobody believed me. And when you said that, it actually jarred my memory how bad I felt, you see? I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm curious, I, I know you created a, a, a strong social media buzz around the book. Um, how have, I'm curious how people have reacted both uh, female as well as male. Oh, well, it's, it's sort of in, um, I would say, Byron, what happens is interesting. It's very interesting and very, very much needed. Meaning that there, we need more safe spaces where people can come out and really say things that they haven't said uh, in other places. And I didn't expect it in, on something like Facebook author's page. I just didn't expect it. I, I do this in retreats with women, so I, I'm privileged to that. And even men that I've worked with. But to, on, on Facebook, really? And what happened was the, you have women who are like, yeah, you know, cheerleaders. Yes, you need to get this out here. This is so important. Um, and then you have survivors that say, yes, this is my story. You nailed it. This is exactly, you know, when I listened to the audio recording that you did of the introduction, that's exactly how I feel. I mean, I've got numbers of them, right? And these are people, many of them I, I've never met. I don't know. This is social, this is Facebook now. But then what struck me was the men. When men came out, and I can tell you, at least four men came out and said, it happened to me. Will you be doing work with men? It happened to me. And it was, and then they're in different states. I mean, one told me about a cult in Seattle. And I've done a lot of research. I didn't know about a cult in, that was taking in boys, right? But I do know about other cults that are out there. And just to hear them be that honest and transparent, I know then that I provided a safe space for them. So their response, this is what people need. I'm just one person, right? And one organization, one nonprofit. But there needs to be spaces more for men and women to be able to share things, you know, things of that nature that they, they actually have gone through. And then I, you can't just leave them out there, right? Because now they've been, you've opened them up, okay? Then they have flashbacks later. So what I always do is I offer in a private message, if you need to talk, I'm here, you know? And then I do what I do, you know, point them to therapists and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, so the book right now is available for pre uh, for for pre order. How 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 can listeners obtain it? When they do a pre order, I will send you a personalized uh, copy, and you would go on my website, my book website, dr dr as in doctor, Renita. These are all lowercase b r e n i t a dr Renita dot com. All right. And they can also hear the introduction, the auto introduction on that website. Is that correct? Yes, they can. It's 22 minutes. And mm -hmm. uh, I think they'll enjoy it because I have some soft water sounds uh, to because it's a hard issue. Right. It's not an easy conversation. And so the, the audio just kind of softens it up. I've gotten a lot of positive response. Like, really, I love that. I felt like getting coffee and some tea and sitting back and listening to your words. Um, also included in the, uh, on my book website is um, my media appearances, which one, this one will be added to it. But there's one there now that where I did a, uh, a podcast about the book. So there's some, you know, there's some good things on there that will help you to really, in addition to my bio uh, and the cover of the book, will help you to really get a, a, a good idea, you know, a sense of, what this what this book is about when I talk about sexual terrorism. And um, for those who want to, um, like on your Facebook, so those who want to join this community, how can they do that? Because you, you, you have a lot of interaction and conversation going. So how can others join that community? 
Well, I'm, I'm the founder and the, the uh, president of Healing Waters Global Inc., as I mentioned earlier. And we are a, um, we actually provide safe spaces for survivors. And all they have to do is go on our website, which is healingwatersglobal.org. And there they'll be able to, it's, it, I always ask uh, individuals who are survivors who want to join, you know, our sisterhood, as we call it, go on, on our website, excuse me, and you'll see, you'll see the, the joyful pictures of women who are on this journey with us. You'll see all of our services uh, that we offer. You'll see retreats. You'll see videos uh, that you can watch of, of, of women who have attended our treats. It's, it's full of a lot of rich stuff that, that will really give you a sense if this is something you want to get involved with. And there's a contact uh, page there. And finally, the book is scheduled to be released when? Spring 2022. So that so somewhere between April. I mean, uh, let me just ask you, are you... Are you having the same problem? I know I'm having this problem. You have the same problem that you were supposed to be uh, released at one point and you're just having publication backlog uh, like I'm having with my book. Are you having that problem too? Yes, I am, Byron, because, um, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, there's a backlog on, on printing, getting the, the books printed and getting them out there. I mean, even to two months to six months in some instances. So, you know, we're dealing with that, that issue, but it will be available. Um, the spring is actually all the way, well, it'll be available this spring. Dr. Bernita Mitchell, author, Central Terrorism, Women Trapped in Silence, Domination, Power, and Control. I want to thank you for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. Thank you, Byron. It's, I've enjoyed it, and I appreciate the fact that you're willing to get this message out to your listeners. And they, they, can, they can even contact me directly, and we can talk about that another time. But yes, thank you for, for allowing me to come before your audience. I appreciate that. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, for all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.